0: and welcome to HEAL Podcast. I'm a trauma psychotherapist and your host, Lucy Ritchie. Today I have the honor of being joined by the one and only Iris McAlpin. Iris is a certified trauma coach and NARM practitioner. NARM stands for NeuroAffective Relational Model, and she specializes in treating self-sabotage, eating disorders, and complex trauma. After struggling with bulimia, complex trauma, and depression for over a decade, Iris became determined to understand what was fueling her self-destructive behaviors and troubling symptoms. This eventually led her to an in-depth study of trauma, which resulted in a radical personal transformation. She now helps people all over the world overcome similar struggles through trauma-informed education, group programs, and individual coaching. My conversation with Iris today touches on the intricacies of eating disorders and how our repressed traumas can be at the root of this behavior. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Iris. All right. So we have Iris here. How are you doing
1: today? I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me and having this really important conversation um so today we're just going to dive right in. We're going to be talking about trauma and its correlation with eating disorders. I know that your story touches a lot on trauma and you've actually experienced an eating disorder yourself. So I thought who best to have on the show than you to to help basically understand what is this correlation.
1: Gosh, okay, so there's so many ways that it can happen. And and I do want to just say from the outset it's not always a result of trauma. But it often is. So I can share a little bit of my story. So there were a lot of different pieces to my own sort of childhood trauma story that I don't think we have time for me to fully go into. But when I was 12, I really started struggling with my relationship with food. And that over a couple of years spiraled into bulimia. And I did all of the sort of traditional evidence based treatments and didn't find any of them helpful at all. In fact, some of them, although well-intentioned kind of made things worse for me and there was just something that didn't feel right about that. It didn't make sense to me the way it was being approached. And so being a very curious person, I I started doing a lot of my own reading and research, just trying to understand what was happening for me. And, you know, I I had this strong desire to recover from my eating disorder, but I just couldn't Mm. at the time. Mm. And Through a lot of searching, I started noticing that there was something to do with being disconnected from my body. There was something to do with a need for control. There was something to do with disrupted attachment. And there were all these like little threads that I couldn't quite put together. And when I was a little bit older in my 20s, I started receiving somatic experiencing Mm -hmm. as a treatment. Mm -hmm. And that really started to... for me, it started to gel. And I I started a sort of peer mentor recovery program for women with eating disorders and started noticing all of these women had their own childhood trauma histories. And that's eventually what led me to pursue NARM. And I stopped actually working with eating disorders specifically and started focusing on trauma because I started to feel like that was really what was at the root of so many struggles and mm-hmm. it made sense to me to focus on the root rather than the symptom.
0: Yes. And it it sounds like it took you several years to sort of recognize there's something that's really off. Um yeah. and you know you were recognizing that you were having signs of bulimia, but you weren't at the time connecting it to childhood trauma.
1: Not at all. It took me such a long time to put that together because I felt like it was about the food. And a lot of the treatment that I was receiving was like keep a food journal, like track everything that you eat, which was kind of the opposite of what I needed. I needed to not be thinking about food so much. Yeah. And I I can understand why some people might think that that would make sense, but for me and for a lot of people I've worked with, it it can actually just aggravate the obsession. Yeah. And so, yeah, I realized it just it wasn't about the food at all. That just became in a way, a surrogate attachment figure and a way to soothe myself without having to ask somebody else, without having to be vulnerable, without having to risk
0: getting hurt. Wow. Looking back at your childhood and noticing as you were going through adolescence and early adulthood, noticing the signs, what do you see from this lens, like from where you are today, being one of the most poignant signs that you were having a reaction to childhood trauma, and it was showing up as bulimia.
1: Yeah, so there are a lot of layers to this. And they actually talk about this in healing developmental trauma, which is the co authored by the creator of norm. And they talk about early disruptions in attunement from, you know, I think from birth, basically until a year and a half, if there are major ruptures in our our caregiver's ability to attune to our needs, that can really disrupt our relationship with food. And when you think about it, I mean, I have a 14 month old daughter and for the first, you know, six months of her life, I was, I was her food source. And Mm so, and that's not always true. Not everyone breastfeeds exclusively, or maybe at all.
0: Yeah. Whether through breasts or or even through formula
1: or what have you. Exactly. The parent and food are just completely interconnected. And so when there's disruption in that, there already at a very early age starts to be some complication or there can be some complication in our relationship to our needs and particularly our relationship with food. And so you know, at least in in my case, and I hear this from a lot of people, there was a lot going on in my early childhood home. There were some major family tragedies that took place when I was one that really consumed my mom and she just wasn't as available. And that's not a unique story. I think a lot of our parents and particularly people who've struggled with this, Mm -hmm. were going through something and, and we have this, like primal urge to bond with our our caregivers. We can't escape that. And so when that gets disrupted, we start, we don't blame the parent. We don't have that sort of frame of reference. We assume that there must be something wrong with us. Maybe I need too much. And we start to disconnect from ourselves as a way to cope with that. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for sharing it in that sort of way, because you you sort
0: of opened up the window to exactly where I want to go, which is that we cannot believe as kids that our parents aren't able to uh, take care of us, because what that means is we're basically left to the lions and tigers and bears of the jungle. We're not wired for society. We're wired to survive the jungle. And so if we don't have a tribe that can take care of us, if we're not accepted, the nervous system Checks it out as, oh, I'm being rejected right now. So if it's emotional rejection or physical rejection, it does feel like, okay, I better change something or I'm gonna get myself thrown to the wolves. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is where we start to internalize. Um, when I was I was sort of talking to you, you know, off-air earlier, but we start to internalize this sort of seed from our parents So the way that we believe our parents to be relating to us or, um, viewing us, we sort of internalize like a vacuum. We suck that idea in and start to relate to ourselves from that lens, shooting ourselves from that lens and becoming a representation of that lens based on what our little brains, um, and nervous systems, you know, made us understand us to be.
1: Yeah.
0: How do you, how do you connect with that? Because you're an arm master practitioner. So I'm just curious on your views on this, this relational piece where we have to internalize blame in order to survive and how that could even lead to behaviors like an eating disorder.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you know, children don't really have the capacity and until they're older to think about things outside of an egocentric lens. So if something is wrong. It's not the environment. It's us. And and Lauren Teller talks about this a lot. It's a way of preserving hope. It's a way of feeling like, because I mean, if our parents are not able to provide what we need and our environment isn't able to provide what we need, when we're six months old, we have absolutely no capacity to change that. So if the blame is out there, then we're doomed, right? If it's something about us. Like I need too much, or maybe I'm not asking loudly enough for what I need. Maybe mm-hmm. I need to demand what I, you know, more aggressively, mm-hmm. what I need for my environment, whether we shut down or we speak up louder, you know, if we think it, it's our own fault, then there is at least something we can do about it. And so, you know, these early seeds get planted at a very young age. They usually don't manifest into an eating disorder until much later. Although these days it's it's happening younger and younger unfortunately and i want to be clear too it's not just these early you know formative experiences that automatically create an eating disorder you mix that these sort of early relational ruptures that have us relating to our mm-hmm. needs in a through a distorted lens and then you pile on diet culture and then you know if there's later trauma that can further disrupt mm-hmm. our connection to our bodies that just amplifies it so it's a very layered issue like everything i suppose yeah but but i think it's important to know that you know these these are strategies that form for a good reason we're we're trying to our best as as little people with the awareness and knowledge that we have to try to navigate these really complex environmental and relational systems and we we often like go to the things that we know things like food to cope mm-hmm. and on some level it it works you know if like let's say we're just desperate for nurturing and sweetness things that we would naturally want to get from our caregivers, if they're not available to provide that, then we might go to the pantry for that. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I look back on my early years, I can see there's like almost a something almost like cute and sweet about that thinking. It's like, oh, I need this uh, sweetness in my life. So I'm going to go get it and a cookie. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. Our, our culture really pathologizes that. And turns it into this weird thing about willpower and um
0: yeah it's kind of off the 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 main source the main root of it all so i'm curious if we go to you know this this seed kind of starts and you're right it doesn't always start in childhood it could be for many a, a variety of reasons but Um, There are a lot of psychiatrists that say when they are sitting with someone who has an eating disorder, it oftentimes, like, you know, in the 90% can be traced back to childhood trauma. So what I'm kind of curious is there's this thing in NARM where we often talk about shame, not, and I don't, I use the word just with quotes here, but not just as an emotion, but also as a function Mm -hmm. to help to disconnect who we authentically are so that we can be a representation of who we feel we need to be. And you said something that was just, you know, so perfectly aligned with what I'm trying to get at here, which is as we get older, practicing this way of being over and over and over again, and then you find yourself as an adolescent with this diet culture that again is reinforcing, you're not accepted as you are. Continue to flourish that seed of shoulds. Right. So keep shaming yourself. In other words, you're not good enough. So of course, that just reinforces, I would imagine, um, for us to reach for just one more cookie or one more something to
1: soothe. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So Let's see where to begin here. (laughs) Yeah, because there's because you're pointing at a couple of things. There's sort of the self sabotage piece and then there's the shame piece. So, with the shame piece, I think of shame sort of like an electric fence. It sort of lets us know when we're getting close to a need or a way of being or a desire or something that would have been a threat to our relational safety. So, Mm -hmm. let's say you live in a home, this is true for a lot of people, unfortunately, where the parents are really caught up in diet mentality and certain foods are like demonized and blacklisted. And if you were to reach for that in childhood or even express a desire for that, you would be shamed by your parents. And we learn pretty quickly what's going to set that off, that kind of shaming, um, external shaming. And it's actually really smart when you think about it. Instead of just always waiting for the external shaming, we'll start shaming ourselves to try to avoid any disruption to the connection with our parents, which, as you were saying, if we're wired for the jungle, not society, being rejected by our parents could potentially mean banishment. It could mean we get eaten by the tiger. So we really want to stay connected and stay in their good graces. And so we quickly learn to shame ourselves as, as a, a relational safety. And so shame becomes this internal process that we engage in. And it often, it happens so fast. It's almost like trying to catch lightning. It's like, if you really slow down and, and look at it, usually with the help of a professional, you can start to see the process, but it usually happens so quickly inside of ourselves that it just feels like a feeling. And it can take a little bit of time to kind of slow down enough to see how we are actually shaming ourselves. Yeah. But that was something that was really helpful for me to learn in my NARM training. And then something else I just want to speak to, because I think a lot of people might hear, okay, we're in diet culture. Why would we, if we're trying to, you know, preserve our place in the system, why wouldn't we want to stay away from the cookie? Why would we reach for the cookie in order to... You know, soothe ourselves. And this is where we find ourselves in some of these binds. If we know that we can't go to our parents for the nurturing, the care, the affection that we want, but we can reliably go to the cookie to soothe ourselves, then we'll learn how to do that at an early age, usually before we've internalized all of the messaging from society about how we're supposed to look. Mm-hmm. But we already have that in place. And then as we get older, like preteens, especially, are starting to look more out into the the broader culture. And then we find ourselves in this bind because this is the thing that we've learned. Okay, this is where I can safely get comfort Mm -hmm. without facing rejection. But now I'm getting rejected again by this culture at large for soothing myself in this way. So, so many young people find themselves in this, you know, we talk about this a lot in NARM, these impossible binds Mm -hmm. where the very thing that we need to feel safe then ends up feeling like a threat. Yeah. And that's exhausting. I will say from firsthand experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so sorry that you went through that. And I I just love the the richness that you're bringing to this conversation, like getting down to this root. And so I'm curious too, when we get older um, into adulthood, and then we find ourselves in an intimate partner relationship where we're supposed to look to our partner for connection, for love, intimacy, I'm curious, does that reinforce those same coping strategies to eat if or when things are not going well? Um, if there's any kind of scarcity,
1: yeah, I see this a lot. I mean, we we're often attracted to what's familiar over what's necessarily good for us. And so, and it's not conscious. We're not like, oh, this person is gonna help me play out these <laughs> dynamics with my mom and dad. Awesome. Sign me up.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: But there's something in us that's like, drawn to it because it feels familiar. It's whether or not our home environment was one that felt good. There's, there's still that sort of anchoring of like, okay, this person feels like home and depending on what your home looked like, that's maybe a good thing or maybe not such a good thing. Mm -hmm. But we find ourselves in these relational systems. Oftentimes I won't say always, but often that then sort of end up bringing up all of these dynamics, like you know, maybe our parents told us we were like needy. And so we pick a partner who's a little more emotionally distant and then they tell us we're needy. And so we feel like, oh, I can't go to them to get my needs met. So once again, I'm going to go to the pantry. And that's just one example of many, Mm -hmm. but one that I hear a lot. And so, you know, I think when our later adult relational dynamics mirror those of our early childhood, it's predictable that we're going to go to those same coping strategies that we used back then, unless we've already done a lot of work to find alternatives. But, you know, I say this a lot in my programs where it would be nice if, as soon as we move out of our childhood home, all of our early childhood programming, just reset, reset. (laughs) That'd be great, but that's not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Not so much how it works. And so, you know, what we did when we were four to cope, if that worked at least well enough to help us survive that early time period, that may still feel like the only thing we know, yeah. even if we're, you know, 44 years old. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I also would like to extrapolate a little bit when we think of evolution and, you know, I know you have a 14 month old and you mentioned that you're tired when we were off the air. So don't worry if you can't think yeah. of this, but I'm just going <laughs> to, let's just see where this goes. But, you know, <laughs> When we think of evolution and we think of food, there's, there's like an ingrained scarcity. Like we, we need to eat. And to the point where, you know, our brains reward us, like eat more, uh, eat as fast as you can get as much as you can. And this rewards us to, you know, feel like we are in control. Like we're, we're safe. We're able to survive. And when I think of scarcity in family systems, and I just think of evolution, I kind of wonder if we're not feeling safe at home and there's this reward with food that's already ingrained in us. I wonder if it just
1: naturally reinforces us to find ways to soothe. Gosh, there's a lot embedded in what you just said, because there's a few different things happening. There might be actual food scarcity, which can there's a a strong relationship between food scarcity and development of eating disorders later. There's this kind of misconception. Mm-hmm. It's called the swag stereotype. It's, um, oh my gosh. Oh, skinny, white, affluent girl, or like is what swag stands for, that that's who eating disorders impacts. Mm. That's not the case. Uh, I mean, it, it impacts them too, but it also impacts a wide variety of, of other populations. And so if someone grows up in poverty and there's actual scarcity, and maybe their parents are working multiple jobs, so there's like scarcity of attention as well. Plus, th- we have this very real biological survival need to eat food. You know, all of that can really intensify the desire for food, which can turn into eating disorders later. And then, like you were saying, if if our environment is stressful and we're not feeling safe, mm-hmm. then we might go to food as a way to sort of help our systems feel more safe. And then there's this other layer of scarcity from diet culture where, Mm -hmm. you know, if we put ourselves on diets, which young people are doing earlier and earlier now, your body doesn't know that you could go to any corner store and buy, you know, infinite amounts of packaged food. It feels like it's in a famine. And so we're artificially creating famine conditions Mm -hmm. for our bodies, which triggers that feeling of scarcity, which then makes food only look more appealing. And so people often think, oh, I'm so obsessed with food. I'm so out of control with food. It's like, well, no, you've just been depriving yourself of food. And so food naturally is going to appear very, very precious. And you're going to want to get as much of it as possible. It's a built-in mechanism to help us survive famine Mm -hmm. that evolved over the course of millennia. So it's really hard to override that. Mm -hmm. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of ways scarcity can show up yes in childhood and also in like adolescence and adulthood that's very real in some cases, and then also created through dieting. Yes. Yes. Thank you for sharing that.
0: Just a couple more questions before we go. When we are going through trying times as kids, it is normal to have these coping strategies in otherwise you know, overwhelming environments that we have no control. So if that is what worked great, but if now we're out of that environment and we're noticing that we're still reaching for more and more, and we, we find ourselves out of control with food or alcohol or any kind of addictive uh, stimulants, even if it's uh, sex, gambling, what have you, sometimes what that can indicate is that there is some unresolved stuff going on inside that we can't really connect to. And we're trying to numb with something else. And so that's where we want to reach out for help, especially with a trauma therapist to discuss this and kind of get to the root.
1: I think the thing that I talk about on social media a lot, and it's just something that I really care deeply about is people knowing that even if your behaviors seem mystifying to you even if you desperately want to stop and you haven't been able to i just trust and and know really that on some level those behaviors do make sense in the context of your life you may have to look a little to uncover what that is but you know our our coping strategies are brilliant on some level and they make sense on some level there's nothing wrong with you for doing that you Maybe with not a lot of options, figured out the best ways that you could to survive, and and survive is a a term that throws some people off because they're like I was living in suburbia in Wisconsin, like I was gonna survive, but it's like
0: thanks for pointing that out. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, but it's like we need we need connection to survive, um, we really do, and so we we do whatever we can in our early life to preserve that, and so. I I have deep respect for the ways that we've managed things that felt unmanageable at the time, and and also keeping in mind that what feels unmanageable to a six month old or a two year old is very different than what's going to feel unmanageable to a thirty five year old. And so, you know, these strategies may have formed at a time when we just didn't have enough context to be able to hope. And so, yeah, I think that's something very dear to my. Part and something I I want all people struggling to know.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I know that, you know, from just my own work and like my own personal work and my own work as a trauma therapist, it's a it's an ongoing journey that gets better and better, in my opinion, the more we keep working on ourselves and in our community with others and connecting with others. So I'm curious on how your journey with food has brought you to where you are today. Like, I know you touched on it a little bit, but if we can just end with um, a little bit of context from
1: your journey to, you know, being who you are today, that would be, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I'm a firm believer, especially being in the field, like it's important for us to continue doing our own work. And I really do see it as a lifelong process. And when it came to my eating disorder recovery, I I realized that I was creating a lot of artificial scarcity through depriving myself of food. I did a lot of, once I stopped the binging and purging process, I just shifted that to a binge and restrict process, which was just as bad, really. And I had to really recalibrate my relationship to my needs. I had to reconnect to my body to actually be able to listen to what my body needed and wanted. Yeah. How did you reconnect to your body? Well, that, oh, that's a long story. <laughs> um, I mean, I, the short version is um, doing somatic based work. So somatic experiencing was something that was helpful for me in that process. It was also a little jarring. I just want to be honest about that mm-hmm. because I had I was very disconnected. Okay. And I also did some work with plant medicine, which helped in that process, and then a lot of meditation training on body-based, like body scan type meditations. So, those three practices were really helpful for me in that process. And it it took a while and it it was a bumpy ride. (laughs) I will say that. But worth it, totally worth it. Great. And I, I had to give myself a lot of unconditional permission to eat the foods that I had blacklisted for so long. And that was also a really bumpy process. And Sounded terrible to me at the beginning of my recovery. I was like, I'm not doing that. But eventually I got to a place where it was safe for me to do that and was okay, tolerable enough for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And what's, you know, what's really nice now is I don't really think about it that much. I'd love to eat, but it's not, I just have a lot of that sort of background process, always thinking about food that's just been kind of cleared from my brain. And Mm. I think that's something that is possible. It takes time, but especially when we stop making food so scarce, we just don't need to devote as much brain power to it. Yeah. Wow.
0: Got chills. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that that journey with me yeah. and with these listeners. I really really appreciate your time today. Thank
1: you for having me. Heal
0: Podcast is an educational platform that aims to depathologize trauma through meaningful conversations. None of the information provided is intended to replace conventional therapy and all listeners are invited to seek their own professional services for their unique concerns. We are thrilled to have our listeners as part of our growing community. We strive to make our conversations as educational as possible and of course, interruption free, which is why we do not include advertisements. So with that, I ask that you please subscribe to HEAL podcast like, and share it with your friends. And of course, with your social media to support the growth of this channel, I'd love to stay in touch with you. So come follow me on Instagram at heal psychotherapy. You can follow me on YouTube and you can also come visit us at healpodcast.com where we do give away lots of free resources. You can get a free ebook and you can also submit a question for our next guest. Last but not least, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jordan Bernard for creating the music for heal podcast. And of course, I'd like to thank you so much for being
1: here. And as always, I'm truly rooting for you.